Welcome to this series of short podcasts about the stories of the Tudors. My name's Tony Riches, and I'm historical fiction author from Pembrokeshire in Wales, and I specialise in the history of the early Tudors. In my last podcast, I said I'd be talking about Catherine of Aragon this time, but my new book, Brandon Tudor Knight, which is about the life of Charles Brandon, is published this week, so I've decided to say something about the two years of research which went into the book, and I'll be returning to Queen Catherine in the next podcast. When I wrote my last book, uh, Mary Tudor Princess, about Mary Tudor, um, I became fascinated by the life of her second husband, Charles Brandon. And most people are probably familiar with Brandon's story of how he risked everything to marry Mary Tudor against the wishes of her brother, Henry VIII. Probably the image that they have in their mind is that from the television series, The Tudors, which uh, was rather fanciful, but never mind. And what they might not know is how Brandon found himself seriously out of his depth fighting Henry's wars in France, or that after Mary's death, he married his 14-year-old ward, the wealthy heiress Lady Catherine Willoughby. It was quite fun as a writer to explore Mary's story from Brandon's point of view and really I should set the scene by saying that Charles Brandon's father William Brandon was Henry VII's standard bearer and in fact he features in my book Henry book three of the Tudor trilogy and at the Battle of Bosworth it's thought that he's one of the few men to have actually been killed by King Richard III in the battle. Uh, it's impossible to tell from the surviving accounts, but I I believe that he might have been able to defend himself better if he had not been quite so determined to protect the Tudor standard, which he clung on grimly until he fell dead. Um, after his father's death, young Charles Brandon was taken into the king's household as in recognition, I suppose, of, of how his, his own father had given his life. And he would have grown up as a companion to the young Henry VIII. There was a small group of them who would uh, play sports together, including the, the emerging game of tennis and uh, he would have known Henry's sisters, the infant princesses, Margaret and Mary, and probably um, known them quite well, really, as they, they sort of grew up together. But there isn't much mention of this until he was much older. 
Brandon himself was tall for the times, uh, li like his father and like Henry VIII. He, he stood out from his, his contemporaries, and by all accounts he was dark and handsome and charismatic, and he became a champion jouster. And Henry, of course, had been banned from jousting or doing anything dangerous by his worried father, who uh, was determined to protect his heir. But of course, after his father died, uh, everything changed. And Henry VIII um, really began to enjoy himself. And uh, Charles Brandon became, you could say, the last of the true uh, Tudor knights in that Henry promoted the whole idea of um, chivalry and courtly love and really invented his own view of the sort of mythical Arthurian kingship. Well, that's what he wanted to do anyway. Um, actually, what happened is that I think most times uh, Charles Brandon he would have probably been very instrumental in teaching uh, Henry the skills of jousting and they often competed against each other and it's fairly well known that during one of these jousts uh, Brandon's lance which was designed to shatter on impact um, actually entered the, the king's helmet because Henry's visor was raised it's very hard to see out of these helmets and so it's understandable that he would have left his visor raised but he's supposed to lower it before he actually charged which he failed to do and um, Brandon's lance uh, struck the king on the temple and shattered within his helmet sending um, splinters of wood into his face the king fell from his horse and there's probably a groan from the crowd because they thought that uh, Brandon had killed Henry. Uh, Brandon thought he probably would get executed or at least flung into the Tower of London. But in fact, Henry was quite forgiving. Fortunately, he, he recovered fairly quickly and uh, carried on jousting to prove that he was OK. But these sort of incidents didn't do Henry any good. And of course, uh, in the end, he couldn't hardly get onto a horse, never mind uh, uh, beat anybody in a joust. But they did become very close friends, and I'd even go as far to say that throughout the whole of Henry's life, uh, Charles Brandon was the only person that he would really count as a true friend, because everybody else was trying to see what they could gain from the thing and um, I think that Charles Brandon's relationship with Henry uh, ran much deeper than that and in fact he was prepared to lay down his own life to, to, to satisfy the wishes of the king. So when uh, Mary's husband uh, King Louis of France died um, then Henry must have known that there was something between his best friend and his sister, uh, yet he still chose Brandon to send as his envoy to France in 1515 to escort uh, his young widowed sister Mary Tudor back. Uh, 
um, before she got married off by the French to some minor noble or something like that. But it's an interesting question because it's said that he made Brandon promise not to marry Mary. Brandon was single at the time. And uh, the, very, the very idea that he would have to promise not to marry her suggests uh, that Henry thought it was a real possibility. And of course, uh, he promptly does. He risks everything to marry Mary without the king's consent, in fact, against the king's wishes. And he would have known how dangerous that was. And people have, have raised the question as to why, why did he take such a great risk? And I think the answer is quite complex in that Firstly, there was the opportunity and that they were kind of thrown together in much the same way as Owen Tudor was thrown together with uh, Catherine of Valois so many uh, years before. And they found themselves uh, in France uh, with the opportunity to actually see each other. And of course, as I've already said, they knew each other very well. Mary was very beautiful by all accounts. In fact, the um, ambassadors to France and Spain had described her as things like uh, the jewel of England and the most beautiful princess they'd ever seen. And as I've said, Charles was handsome and charismatic. Uh, also, he would have realised that if they had any children, unless... Henry had a child, then um, a son, then they, they, their children might stand a chance of being in the line of succession. Um, but the most important one that, that I believe is that uh, Brandon had actually fallen in love with Mary before she got married to Louis. There'd been nothing he could do about it. And suddenly he finds himself in a position where he might just get away with it. And this is where Thomas Wolsey becomes an important player. Brandon's relationship with Cardinal Wolsey is a curious one in that he always seems to be in his debt. And I mean properly financially in his debt, borrowing money from Wolsey and um, never get quite getting around to paying it back. And I believe that Wolsey saw this as a way of securing his own position by having the king's best friend um, in his pocket kind of thing uh, between them they would be able to have very privileged influence over Henry and so Wolsey helps encourage Henry to inverted commas forgive Brandon um, and he does of course and he makes Brandon the Duke of Suffolk but Brandon's own loyalty is tested uh, when Henry sends him off to fight his wars in France. Henry had always fancied himself as a warrior king, although he didn't actually um, fight in any battles. He had some rather splendid suits of armour and uh, he was quite happy to send Brandon in. Uh, they, they both seem to forget, actually, that there's a huge difference between being a champion jouster with a a pretend lance and under very con reasonably controlled circumstances and actually leading an army 
of thousands of men into battle against um, a very skilled and experienced army. And, um, of course, it, it doesn't work out very well at first because Brandon had no experience and he, he relied as best as he could on uh, the more experienced military commanders. But um, by a stroke of chance, as much as anything else, uh, he starts to have some successes and uh, survives the experience. But when he returns, what happens then is that, uh, of course, Henry starts to um, think about what he should do to secure an heir. And Mary, as a best friend of Catherine of Aragon, uh, finds herself in a dangerous conflict with the ambitious Boleyn family and also uh, the king's new right-hand man, Thomas Cromwell. So Charles Brandon is kind of caught in the middle in that uh, he, he was made the high steward at the wedding of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn in 1533 and he was rewarded with land huge amounts of land as part of the dissolution of the monasteries um, but it must have been very challenging for him with his wife being quite so vocally in opposition to Queen Anne I don't want to say an awful lot more about a Brandon story uh, because there are some people that might like to read the book uh, and uh, follow it along without knowing too much about it so no spoilers but um, I'd like to say a little bit more about my research because as part of that I visited uh, the Brandon's Manor House at Westhorpe in Suffolk to see what I could find out and get a sense of the place and of course it features prominently in my new book as well as in my previous book Mary Tudor Princess and like many Tudor houses, it, Westhorpe was demolished in the 18th century, which is a real shame. But I was keen to see what I could learn from the site. And I knew that it had been um, the main residence uh, right up to the time of Mary's death. So Brandon had actually built Westhorpe using Mary's French dower income and he used th what was a, a moated site of the former De La Pole property. But his new building was on a much grander scale. And when um, I went there, it was, it was fascinating to see that uh, the moat still survives. So you, you go across a Tudor bridge, which has got Tudor roses set into the pillars, and cross the moat, which is when I went there um, earlier this year, it was green with pondweed, but you get a proper sense of it. And then you can see the scale of the place. Now, there's a, a care home on the site now, but I looked back at the records and there was an inventory of the property taken um, in 1538, which uh, records a a moated house of brick decorated with terracotta panels 
built round an open courtyard 126 feet square and the range of the house on the eastern side was approached from the west over the moat by an arched bridge and this is the one that that I crossed and the 1538 inventory also describes a, a brick gatehouse with battlements and turrets three stories high uh, flanked by three rooms with corner towers and um, it says that all the windows were uh, glazed and the walls were laid over with plaster checker-wise black and white and covered with tile and the gatehouse and the towers were covered with lead so you could get a, a bit of a sense and there's a drawing done by the archaeologists who did a study of the site um, which which I used uh, in my books and a feature of the house was uh, an internal corridor with windows overlooking this central courtyard uh, and on the south side were four main rooms linking uh, to the servants quarters and of course um, in the east range there was the great hall which was some 70 feet long with mullioned bay windows onto the courtyard and the fascinating thing is that you can actually see uh, the foundations of these buildings and when when i spoke to the owner the current owner of the site he said would you like to see what we've recovered from the moat during the archaeological research and he took me to a, a Tudor barn and in there were the actual uh, pieces of terracotta from the mullioned windows and uh, you could see Tudor roses on them the, the way that terracotta works is that it's pressed into a, a mould and then fired and then uh, put on the front of Tudor brick like um, a facing and he took me to his house which was close by and over the fireplace uh, was a, a piece of this terracotta uh, which actually had Charles Brandon's crowned lion and so I could actually touch the same uh, emblem that Charles Brandon would have definitely run his hands over when he first saw it I can easily imagine that it took me right back to uh, all those centuries ago um, sadly uh, I said it was demolished uh, 1760 it was Westlock was visited by the antiquarian uh, Thomas Martin of Palgrave who wrote uh, I went to see the dismal ruins of Westhorpe Hall, formerly the seat of Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk. The workmen are now pulling it down as fast as may be, in a very careless and injudicious manner. The coping bricks, battlements and many other ornamental pieces are made of earth and burnt hard, as fresh as when first built. They might with care have been taken down whole but all the fine chimneys and ornaments were pulled down with ropes and crushed to pieces in a most shameful manner. There was a monstrous figure of Hercules sitting cross-legged with his club. 
and a lion beside him, but all was shattered in pieces. The painted glass is likely to share the same fate, but the timber is fresh and sound, and the building, which was very lofty, stood as when it was first built. It is a pity that care is not taken to preserve some few of our ancient fabrics. And um, in 1839, the Victorian John Wooderspoon, in historic sites and other remarkable and interesting places in Suffolk, noted that uh, the whole of Westhorpe was of large dimensions and had attached a chapel with cloisters in which existed a fine window of stained glass. The gardens of large extent were kept in the style of a continental pleasure grounds, the princess having imbibed a taste for the quaint conceits of the French mode of gardening by her brief sojourn in France. The whole building is, however, removed. Um, in 1988, uh, trial excavations were undertaken to see how accurate these descriptions were, and this is where we get the measurements, and they also found the cobbled floor of the gatehouse. And when I visited, uh, I actually found part of that cobbled floor as well, and a few little fragments of uh, stained glass, which was very intriguing, and I'd like to think that was from uh, Mary's Chapel. The um, trenches extended all around the moat and they also established that what was said about the gatehouse was correct. It was massive and the um, terracotta, they don't really know what to do with it, I think. It's, it's still in, in that storage in that um, barn, but the, there is a book that I've got which is an account of all of that which you can get hold of and it actually itemises every single piece uh, because um, in 1991 uh, the, an English Heritage Grant uh, funded this project and they uh, established uh, exactly what was what. But the fascinating thing was to stand there in the grounds of Westhop Hall and to visualise uh, the sights and sounds that Mary and Brandon would have heard and seen, which are almost unchanged because it's such a peaceful spot deep in the Suffolk countryside. And uh, I feel very privileged to have been there. And, and very sad, really, that it was all demolished. But that's the way things are. That's progress. Um, just to round off, I'd, I'd like to say something about Charles Brandon's end, in that Thomas Cromwell, in his reforms to the royal household, created a new position of the Lord Great Master, who would oversee everything. Uh, Henry was ailing a little now and um, couldn't really, wasn't really in a position to run the country. But Charles Brandon was the first person to hold this post. Yet again, he wasn't really qualified for it. Um, it must have really annoyed the noble families, the Howards and the people like that, that uh, saw what they st always thought of. They referred to him as uh, the, he was the master of horse and they, they called him the stable boy and other derogatory terms and resented his privileged access to the king. But he ended up overseeing everything and he had the post until his death. And when he died, 
King Henry is recorded as saying that in all their long friendship, Charles Brandon had never knowingly betrayed a friend or taken advantage of an enemy. And he's reported to have asked his counsel, is there any of you who can say as much? Charles Brandon um, asked for a modest funeral and he wanted to be buried in the College Church of Tattershall in Lincoln. But Henry, uh, being Henry, decided instead he should be buried with full honours at St George's Chapel in Windsor where he'd been made a Knight of the Garter. And I visited St George's Chapel as part of my research and uh, after, with some difficulty, I must admit, I found Brandon's tomb. It's in the fourth bay of the South Choir Isle, quite close to the south door. And the reason I was struggling to find it, I, it, it was actually covered by a wooden bench seat. Um, but it's underneath a life-size portrait of um, King Edward III, so that's a good landmark if you're ever looking for it. And... Um, it seems uh, that it is really quite modest, which is what Brandon would have wished. But the chapel records show that in 1787, it was ordered that leave be granted to lay a stone above the grave of Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, according to His Majesty's directions. And the resulting stone has a simple inscription, uh, which states only that Charles Brandon married Mary, daughter of Henry VII, widow of Louis of France. And I think that's what he would have liked. Um, and it's interesting, of course, that right right to the end, Mary is still uh, really referred to as Queen of France, which is what she would have liked. There is a jousting helmet mounted on the wall adjacent to Charles's tomb, but uh, firstly, it's, uh, it, it's not a funerary helm, and I don't think it has any connection with Charles Brandon. And uh, it's a bit of a shame, really, that uh, his tomb isn't uh, better known. But he would have been amused to see uh, that it's right next to um, Henry VI's tomb, and actually uh, a stone's throw from the, the tomb of uh, King Henry VIII himself. So now I've got two sequels, in inverted commas, to the Tudor trilogy, and the five books form a, a series which provide um, a continuous narrative throughout the reign of the two King Henrys. And um, I had the question of where to go next. So what I decided to do is to write the amazing story of what became of Catherine Brandon, um, Charles's last wife after his death. Um, she's been described as one of the most fascinating of all the Tudor women, which is quite a big claim given uh, who, who she's got to compete against. But um, I was just amazed by her story. And there are only a couple of books um, about her. So I'm going to try and find a fresh look at her life and so I'm researching and writing that now and that will lead me right up to the coronation of Queen Elizabeth I and open up the whole of the fascinating world of the Elizabethan Tudors. The Tudor trilogy is available from Amazon as 
are all of my books and my new book, uh, Brandon Tudor Knight. And links to all of my books can be found on my website at tonyriches.com. Thank you for listening. Je vivrai